Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and for this episode I've delved deep into the History Hit archive to pull out an episode from the fantastic Chalk Valley History Festival. Chalk Valley is the largest festival dedicated entirely to history and it's taking place from the 23rd to the 27th of June this year with a stage sponsored by History Hit. This episode is with author, actor and comedian Charlie Higson, who you'll know from The Fast Show and Jekyll and Hyde, but also his books on the young James Bond, and best-selling author and historian Ben McIntyre, whose most recent book is Agent Sonia. At Chalk Valley, they brought these two together to combine Ben's vast historical knowledge and Charlie's passion for all things spies so they can discuss spies and espionage in fiction and in real life. Enjoy. everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm delighted to be here with Ben McIntyre, who many of you will know as a journalist on The Times and the highly successful and acclaimed author of Operation Mincemeat, Agent Zigzag, SAS Rogue Heroes, and uh, the younger people here will know Charlie is the author of the uh, young James Bond books, and the slightly older people will remember him from The Far Show. The younger people will be delighted to know that he's met Johnny Depp, which is quite exciting. Um, I just want to do a quick straw poll. How many people, because it was billed as a sort of family event, how many people here were born after the year or in the year 2000? Just put your hands in the air. Okay. So we must use good Now leave. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to kick off straight away and start talking about spies and spying. And you and I, Ben, have something in common that we were both in our youth approached for jobs by MI6. Yeah, let's start by breaking the official secret. Yes. Can we do that? Let's, just, let's go straight um, into that. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I really wanted to be a spy, so in my final year at Cambridge, I hung around trying to look sort of sinister and um, <laughs> wearing a variety of interesting hats. And then eventually, uh, finally, my history don came up and said, what are you doing after university? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, there are parts of the Foreign Office that are different from other parts of the Foreign Office. <laughs> in the sense that they are different from other parts of the Foreign Office. <laughs> he never actually said what it was I was going to go and do, but eventually a, a letter arrived from a Major Halliday 
uh, in a sort of brown envelope. And Major Halliday, I discovered, was at least five different people because others, <laughs> I know other people who were interviewed for the same job. And my Major Halliday, rather disappointed, I was expecting James Bond, but he really wasn't. He was a, he was a sort of overweight fellow and he was wearing s sandals with socks. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of more or less ended it for me. I decided that I, I couldn't belong to an organisation like that. And, I, and actually, I think they decided pretty early on that I probably wasn't ideal since I, as is now obvious, can't keep a secret. <laughs> Charlie, um... No, I want to hear about your recruitment. I, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Oh. Um, <laughs> do you think that you would have made a good spy? I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I would have made a terrible, terrible spy. I think you need to be a very special sort of person. I mean, most spying is probably sitting in an office looking at computers these days, but going out into the field, pretending to be someone else, infiltrating some extremely dangerous organisation, and sometimes for years people do this, uh, and having to sort of fool all these people and make friends with them, knowing that you're going to betray them and that you could be captured and tortured and killed at any point. I mean, what sort of a person would want to do that? That's Sounds fantastic. The... No, it's, it's absolutely awful. But, you know, I, I do... I'm a writer, so I just sit in my little room at home and make stuff up and have adventures in my head, which is a lot easier. So was your first exposure to the world of spying... Uh, through the, the books of In Fleming, the, the, the movies of, 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 of the Bond books, or in some different way? Yes. Um, my involvement in spying is... It, I think we've got people here on slightly false pretenses. It says spies and secret agents, plural, but I, I can only talk about one, which was James Bond. <laughs> so thank you for asking me about him. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in the 60s, and like any other boy in the 60s, James Bond was, like, the biggest thing in the world. The first film that I, I can still remember actually going to see in the cinema was Thunderball. And, you know, James Bond films in this country have always been seen as family entertainment. So, yes, there's uh, someone gets tortured with a cigar and an ice cube. Another man gets pinned to a tree with a harpoon. It was great fun as a small boy. <laughs> uh, the introduction to that, to that world. But it was just such an exciting thing. And you know, so through the 60s into the early 70s, you know, I was a massive James Bond fan. And then later on, um, I thought I really ought to read the books. So I, I did start reading the, the Fleming books. And they're still incredibly readable, those books. I mean, m written through the 50s. Um, Ian Fleming was a fantastic writer about action and about things and places. He was very vivid talking about uh, the places that James Bond went, which were normally places that Fleming went to and was writing about what he was passionate about. And writing action scenes, actually, because I know from experience of trying to write themselves, is one of the hardest things to write. Um, it's much easier to do in a, in a film, but in a book, to try and write about a big battle or a fight of who is where and doing what and to who and what's happening at the same time in other places and making that vivid and putting you right there and feeling what that's like is extremely difficult. difficult. But Fleming was fantastic about doing that. And the, in, all, in all the books, there is at least one amazing action sequence really well described, like in uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, there's yeah. a bit where Bond is trying to escape from the... From the mountain hideout and they start an avalanche and that is just amazingly well described and things you know he loved 
things, gadgets, cars, guns, all that type of stuff. So he was brilliant about writing about that. He was less good writing about people, mm. um, sort of em emotions and um, that side of stuff. Uh, and, and I think po possibly that it's that side of the books which have dated yeah. most. But, but they, are, they are still amazing books to read. Ben, what do you think accounts for the British fascination with spies but, and also their deep love of James Bond? What, what, what do you think is going on there? I think there's a sort of theatricality to the British character that is kind of essential to it. I mean, I've never been quite sure whether people are, are, are mad before they become spies or are driven mad by being spies. But there is a thick vein of kind of very British eccentricity that runs through the whole thing. And I think it's partly to do with a sort of wanting to live in a sort of a double life. I think that is very central to sort of British feelings. I mean, particularly the sort of, the sort of communist spies of the, of the 30s, 40s and 50s, I think they, they loved the idea of, of knowing a little bit more than the person in the bus queue next to them. Um, and, and, and actually, John Le Carre writes brilliantly about the British character. He said once, you know, there is... How does it go? He says, there is no more deceitful creature in the world than the public school educated Englishman. Um, you know, he Thanks. Can be, there we go. He can, you know, he can be having a forced 12 nervous breakdown in the bus queue next to you and you'll never be any the wiser. Which is... And I think there is a sort of... There is a sort of natural deceptiveness, really, to, 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 to spying, which people love. But I'm fascinated by the... I've always been fascinated by the... I mean, Fleming was particularly brilliant at this, at taking the real world of espionage and turning it into fiction. Um, and it seems to me that also spies particularly... I mean, the only... Are, are obsessed by their own mythology. So they sort of, in some ways, live up to the, to the fiction. Um, for example, again, John le Carre, I mean, the, the language that John le Carre uses is entirely invented by John le Carre, but it's used by MI6 now. <laughs> I mean, they all talk about the circus and, the, you know, all that sort of the lamp lighters and moles and things. That's all been invented. Only the mafia and the police do the same thing, trying to live up to the myth. So I love the interplay between truth and, and sort of and fiction in yeah. all of that. And the interesting thing about Bond is that he's actually not... A spy. He's not an intelligence officer in the in the in the in the formal sense of somebody who goes out and identifies an individual, a group of individuals who have access to information, and who and he, he must then get that information. He's basically an assassin, which I suppose is more. Yeah, he's not. A, he doesn't do any spying. No. And he's not really desperately secret, is he? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, when uh, when when Roger Moore was off at the job, he said, "Well, I can't possibly play play this seriously. I have to send it up because, you know, he, he's supposed to be a secret agent, but he can go to any bar in the world, and the barman will say, "Well, Mr. Bond, <laughs> um, <laughs> here's your martini, shaken not stirred." Mm, uh, yeah. No, I mean the books are incredibly simple. In the first chapter, Bond goes to visit M. M says, "This is the villain. Um, we think he's up to this. Can you go and check him out and sort him out?" And Bond does that. There is no, there are no twists and turns and double agents and um, twisty plots. It's basically he goes, uh, meets the person, has some adventures with them, tends to get captured, tortured. He escapes. He comes back and he kills them, and 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 that's what happens. Um, did you did you use that? Template when you were writing the young Bonds, did you did you go back to the to, to the mothership and read uh, read the backlist? And, and yeah, well, exactly. And and there is the, 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 there's the, there is that great formula of how all the best Bond books work. I was in a slightly tricky position because I was writing about young James Bond when he was just a schoolboy at 
Eton, which I believe is your old school. It is. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll just talk about <laughs> Mill that. Pond Silence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's. But he has to have James Bond-style adventures, but he's obviously, at 13, he's not working for, for the Secret Service. Yeah. So I had to go through all the laborious stuff of setting up a plot and, and villains and, and working out a way that Bond was going to get involved in all that, which in the Fleming books he does in, like, one paragraph, but would take me a third of the book to do, so... Yeah. I think Fleming used... He was at school with Scaramanga. He was at school with... Uh, uh, Drax, Blofeld, and, and, and I think some of them... You would know this more than I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. I mean, more than anyone, he, he extracted... I mean, correct me if this is wrong, Charlie, but he extracted a lot of his plots from his experience, and particularly his wartime experience. I mean, school, definitely, all the names. He loved getting even with the people who'd been cruel to him at school <laughs> yeah. by, you know, labelling them as kind of... Yeah. Some of them got furious, actually. Uh, I think particularly Scaramanga, the third nipple didn't go down at all. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but... Um, <laughs> But, but uh, particularly his wartime experience. I mean, he was he was assistant to the head of um, naval intelligence during the war, which meant he did have access to a lot of really high grade material, S so high grade that he was never allowed. He, I, I think he rather chafed at being behind a desk. Yeah, I mean, his his rather brutal wife called him a chocolate soldier because he never, you know, he spent the whole time behind a desk. But but uh, but he longed to go out into the field, but he wasn't allowed to because he actually knew too much. I mean, he really did have access to all sorts of really interesting material. Um, which, which brings me neatly to Operation Mincemeat, which, which was a, a, an operation uh, invented, inspired, created by Ian Fleming. Am I correct? Yes, that? that's right. I mean, uh, Fleming was asked right at the beginning of the war to draw up a series of ideas um, for ruses to baffle the Germans, um, and which he, of course, loved doing. And he, he drew up a thing called the Trout Memo, and it was called the Trout Memo because his boss, who was the model for M, um, Admiral Sir John Godfrey, was a very keen angler. And the whole idea was that if you could drop a sort of sufficiently attractive lure over the enemy, you could hook them and, and confuse them. And, and he drew up these 30 different ideas, most of them completely bonkers. I mean, things like he wanted to float exploding footballs in, in the North Sea in the hope that U-boat captains would pick them up. And the, I mean, it's completely <laughs> mad. Um, but what the maddest idea was, was, was labelled... Uh, Number 30, an idea not a very nice one, he wrote. And this was, he said, we'll get hold of a dead body um, and we'll give it a completely new identity and we'll float it uh, ashore somewhere where the Germans will pick it up and we'll pack it with fake um, counterfeit intelligence and, and, you know, we'll, we'll bamboozle the enemy. And it sat this idea. In fact, he got the idea from a novelist for, uh, that he'd read. I mean, it was a, a long forgotten now. Um, but but he, so it, what I love about this story is that it was sort of... It, it came from a novel. It was then picked up by a novelist. It was then imagined into being by a whole set of frustrated novelists um, <laughs> who decided to do exactly that. They got hold of a dead body. They effectively stole a dead body um, from St Pancras Mortuary and they kept it on ice. And they invested it with a completely new identity as Captain uh, William Martin of the Royal Marines. He was, in fact, this poor man was a, was a Welsh tramp who had poisoned himself with rat poison. Um, and they... they, they literally created a new person and they and they did it just like novelists they sat there dreaming up a backstory for him including girlfriends and parents and all sorts of i mean because the story his pocket litter as it's called in in spy parlance which is the stuff that we all carry on us all the time which 
identifies us. You know, I mean, I'm sure all of us in our pockets have things that will give us away. IPhones. Much more so then. iPhones. <laughs> It'd be much easier now. Um, they designed a whole set of different stuff, including a, a, you know, a photograph of his girlfriend. And then they, they took him by submarine, this, this body, and they floated him ashore in Spain because they knew... Spain was neutral, but they knew that there was a particular, very efficient German spy operating on the coast of Spain. Um, and the, the idea was really to convince the Germans that instead of attacking Sicily, um, the, 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 the troops massed in North Africa were going to go for, for Greece on one side of the Mediterranean and Sardinia on the other. But the weird thing about it was that it worked. Um, and because of Bletchley Park intercepting all the German intelligence signals, you could watch the lie, as it was, sort of going down the gullet of German intelligence. And, and once that started happening, the, the architects of this plan began to panic because they realised they'd made quite a few serious mistakes. Um, they, for example, they'd misdated some of the theatre tickets in his pocket, so it, it couldn't be yeah. that he was genuine. And at that point, they realised that they might have just made an almighty cock-up because, in fact, if the Germans realised that this was a plant and a ruse, they would realise they were being sold a lie, so they would think the opposite of what they were, what they were seeing. So they would actually realise that it was Sicily that was going to be attacked, and, and thousands of lives were at stake. So there was a very bad moment when, like all good plots for all good novels, there's a bit of a kink in it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you, before we leave Ian Fleming in completely, just to ask you about A Caribbean Mystery, which is this film, <laughs> the, the film that you appeared in. There's a, just a lovely story we were talking about before. Well, yes, it was a, um, one of the TV Miss Marples which I was asked to write, they approached me because they said that in their Agatha Christie adaptations, if possible, they would like... they like to put in real historical figures to work them into the action. And they said, as this was the Caribbean mystery and uh, set in the 50s, and Ian Fleming famously had his house, uh, Goldeneye, out in Jamaica. And Goldeneye was actually named after one of the wartime plots, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, well, Goldeneye was the plan... Well, in fact, it was one of Fleming's um, he, ideas. Was, it was for the defence of Gibraltar. It was when Gibraltar... They, they feared that the Germans might just simply invade Gibraltar via Spain. Um, and so, no, Operation Goldeneye was a very... It's all, it's all in the National Archives. It's a great big file, Goldeneye. Um, someone should write about it at some point. But it's... Um, it's a, it's a really interesting case because, I mean, he, he, he was a very good intelligence officer, Fleming. I mean, he knew what he was about. Um, and the plan was a very complicated one to, to effectively to defend Gibraltar. Hands up if you're a real expert on the James Bond films. There must be a couple in here. Yeah. The start of Goldeneye, the film, are they parachuting into Gibraltar in that? No, that's uh, Living Daylight. That's li oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Shows how much I know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they said... That's why they approached me to write this, this Miss Marple, because they said they'd quite like see if I could work Ian Fleming into the, into the plot. And the, the plot of uh, um, Caribbean Mystery is they're, they're all in a hotel and someone gets murdered, surprisingly. Um, never go on holiday with Miss Marple. Uh, and I, so I started writing this and I was having fun with it and I thought, well, if I'm going to put Ian Fleming in it, I'd also quite like to put James Bond in it. And th those of you, probably quite a lot of you who are James, uh, James Bond experts will know that Fleming got the name. He was writing the first book and he didn't have a name for his character. And he wanted, certainly in, when he started writing the books, for James Bond to be quite a sort of blunt, uninteresting, unromantic kind of a character. He, he described him as a blunt object and he said he wanted a really 
ordinary name for him because British sort of heroes in crime books before the war tended to people, be people like Lord Peter Whimsey. Mm. Um, but he didn't want to write about that sort of figure. And in fact, one of the reasons he didn't want to write about that sort of figure was because of his wartime experiences. He had put together this um, special commando unit who were trained in... Um, retrieving useful information from the enemy and he sent these guys out there and a lot of them had really awful experiences um, being captured by the Germans being tortured and so and he would have to debrief them when they when they came back and he wanted to write about a figure like this one of these types of characters he said you know these, these are very special types of men and he also said that now that we know from the Second World War what awful things mankind is capable of, he said, we can't keep writing these cosy drawing room set crime dramas, um, which is why his, his books were much more sort of brutal and visceral and these, these awful things happened in them, because he said the world has changed and, and so the writing has to change. Um, but so there he is at his desk, trying to think of a name for James uh, for his for his character, and he looks at his bookshelf. He was he was very much into wildlife and ornithology and uh, sea life. He had a beautiful coral reef on his private beach outside his house that he used to love snorkeling over. And he looked up, and there was Birds of the West Indies by a guy called James Bond. He was an American ornithologist, and he thought that's the perfect dull name for my character. <laughs> So I thought I'd put this into the Miss Marple thing that I was writing. So I, there's a scene at the hotel where some of the characters are watching this talk by James Bond, the American ornithologist, and one of the people who's come to the hotel for the talk is Ian Fleming, and he t says to Miss Marple, oh, I'm trying to... I'm writing a book, a silly book, and I haven't got a title for my character yet. And so I wrote James Bond into it, and the, the producer said to me, well, you know, what would be really good fun is if you played James Bond. <laughs> so it was all getting terribly sort of tangled into this plot that having written about James... Anyway, so I, I thought, yeah, that would be fun. So I went out and I, I did this little scene as the, as the ornithologist, and I got to say the, the line as I introduced myself with my bird slides. Um, hello, uh, the, the, the name's Bond. Uh, James Bond. Uh, <laughs> at which point you see Ian Fleming get his notebook out and go, hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the world we live in. I, I, actually, I just want to admit, while I think of it, um, you used the word plot before, and I think that's really interesting in what we're talking about today because plot both means the plot of a novel, but it also means a spy plot. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that overlap, as you were saying, the guys who were loving the creative thing mm. of, of, of creating this character for the, for the dead body was exa is exactly what, what novelists do. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's also true of modern espionage. I mean, what spies do, generally, is to create a parallel world. They, tr they try, either as double agents or in disguise or however they do it, but they're trying to create a convincing world and the better they are at doing it, the better they're going to be at confusing the enemy or feeding misinformation to the enemy. So, in a way, what spies and novelists do is not so far apart, I think. I mean, the better the novelist, the, the, the more complete is the world that they create, that they can lure a reader into, and that is exactly what spies do. And I, I, it is no accident, it always seems to me, that, that some of the best writers of, uh, of the last 100 years, a lot of them, have been spies. Mm. Somerset Maugham, Graham Greene, Ian Fleming, John le Carré, Charles Cumming. You know, <laughs> I was never a spy. The, um, 
but I mean, the, the, there is a link. There is clearly a link between sort of creating a sort of false world and luring people into it. And one is dangerous and one isn't. But, but nonetheless, they're, they're similar ideas, I think. Yeah. Um, but do you think, I mean, do you think some of the um, fun has gone out of, of spying? We were talking earlier about uh, Bond and the, and the Cold War and the, and the great uh, escapism of the Connery movies and the, and, the, and the Roger Moore movies, which we grew up with. And now many of the young people in this audience, they'll really only know Bond as... Daniel Craig, and th th those those books are sort of almost like sort of Hamlet with a touch of Freud. You know, they're very serious uh, movies. Do you think that? Do you think that when you watch a Bond movie now, do you think yes, I could watch this with my son in, in ten years' time on Christmas Day, or do you think actually I'll, I'll go back to the Spy Who Loved Me? Do you think that something has been lost? Well, I think the reason that James Bond is still with us today and is such a popular character and has been popular since the fifties when the books were written is that ability to keep reinventing himself. He's like Doctor Who. Um, he kind of regenerates in a new form and he can be relevant to each new generation that comes along. So in, in the 50s, in the books, it was very much talking about the fallout of the Second World War and the way the world had changed and most of the villains in his books are either ex-Nazis or they are up-and-coming communists, Russian communists. And, you know, he was trying to create the, this sort of sustain the fantasy that Britain was still an important force in the world and that our plucky individuality could, could go out there and, and, and keep saving the world. Uh, come the 60s, it's a much more cynical era and so Sean Connery was the perfect sort of 1960s James Bond. He could be flip and flippant and there's a lot of, sort of dark, dark humour in there. You know, he, he will make a humorous comment after killing someone in cold blood. Um, and he's sort of sharp and, you know, he's dressed beautifully and he's, you know, he's driving the lovely cars and everything. You come to the 70s, James Bond is essentially a civil servant. He works for the British government as an assassin, as you, as you said before. And, you know, that idea of a character like that being big in popular culture in the 70s where everything was falling apart and all those old certainties had gone, it just didn't... You couldn't do that anymore. So the idea of sending Bond up a bit and making him a bit camp and making the stories quite big and daft um, was the way to go. And, and Roger Moore beautifully encapsulated the sort of disco era of the, of the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but Bond, there's no question, I think, that Bond has been very... Brand Bond has been very good for MI6. Yeah, they're rather ambivalent about it, though, aren't they? They, they try to deny it. And say, oh, you know, it's not like that at all. And of course, it isn't like that at all. No. And yet, if you go to their website, it's right at the top. I mean, it says, yeah. you know, you know, they always cite James Bond, so they have a funny relationship yeah. with him. I mean, of course, it is complete fantasy, the James Bond thing. I mean, in all the sort of historical research I've done, I've never been able to find a single instance in which British intelligence has killed anybody. I mean, there was one occasion during the during the Second World War when some French resistance people carried out a sort of extrajudicial execution, but it didn't happen. I mean, British... I mean, nobody ever believes this, but British intelligence doesn't assassinate people. No, they get other people to do it for They them. get other people. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, I, when I had my first interview, it said you're being uh, interviewed not for fast-stream diplomatic service, but for SIS. Hmm. And at the bottom it said... Officers are certainly not licensed to kill, and that was <laughs> that was actually written yeah. in the thing. Yeah, yeah. And you signed, yeah. and then the salary, and the, you know. <laughs> that, that was the point you said. That's not for me. Then. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they, yeah. yes, they definitely don't want the sort of bond types. Yeah. I mean, I think they'd be much too. But if, you, but if you're a, if you're a, a but, British, sorry, go on. But you know, your latest book is about the SAS, which mm. is similar 
territory to the to the to yeah the they're they're interesting I mean, those guys were killers yeah I mean some of them were psychopaths definitely mm. um, even though that was <laughs> Sterling said he didn't want psychopaths he did end up with quite a few um, yeah they're interesting the Bond, you know I mean Bond you know if if you do a sort of it's very hard to psychoanalyse a fictional character, but if you go through the psychopath test, Bond is pretty high on pretty it. Pretty high on <laughs> it, yeah. No, and the SAS are interesting because they are, they are soldiers, but they are also intelligence gatherers. They, they do both jobs. Uh, and, in fact, their intelligence role is often overlooked, really. I mean, the SAS are... They're, they're kind of a branch of the intelligence services. But, but no, I mean, they were... The, the original SAS recruits were... Weird mavericks, really. They, they, we sort of imagine them today to be because of the modern myth of the SAS, these sort of muscled, highly efficient, you know, tremendous sort of butch figures in, in camouflage gear. That's not right. They were mostly bonkers, and they had. Um, so who was the most bonkers? Well, <laughs> quite a good question. I think probably uh, probably a man called Paddy Maine, who was the um, he was an Irishman. He was an Irish rugby international. It was a huge. Bloke, um, but he was—he was a killer, really. I mean, he positively enjoyed uh, mowing down people, you know, um, in in mess huts. I mean, that was his—that was his favourite thing. And he—he was—he never adjusted to, to to peacetime either. He he could never settle down, and he died very young. But he, I think, in a way, that's what Sterling was looking for: were people who were just ruthless enough to do some pretty unpleasant things, but were were not so mad that they wouldn't take orders. <laughs> Um, talk, talk, talking, talking of ruthless mavericks, and, and, and um, we've been talking a lot about gentleman spies and the sort of public school educated Ian Fleming, David Sterling type. But could you talk a little bit about Eddie Chapman, Agent Zigzag, and just tell there'll be a lot of young people here who don't know this extraordinary story of this well, he was, con man, thief, hero of the Second World War? <laughs> well, he, was, he was an extraordinary man. I mean, we talk about people inventing their own mythology and somehow living up to a self-created myth. I mean, Eddie Chapman had been a film extra before he was anything else, and I think he was one of those people who felt that there was a sort of camera running just behind him the whole time, and he completely invented himself. He was a, he was a professional criminal uh, in, in Soho during the 1930s. A very efficient one, actually. I mean, he, import, he was the first person to import gelignite to this country um, for the purposes of blowing safes, and um, he ran something called the Jelly Gang, which blew lots of safes around the world around the country. Um, but he happened to be in prison uh, in Jersey when the Nazis invaded the Channel Islands. And he immediately volunteered. He was a tremendous opportunist. Um, he volunteered to spy for the Germans. The understanding being that he faced such a long prison term in Britain that he'd never, he'd never betray them, which, of course, was not the case. Um, so he was trained in a special spy school in occupied France and then parachuted into Cambridgeshire in 1941 um, he hit the ground, broke his nose, and immediately defected to MI5 um, and offered to spy for them. Um, and they were never quite sure whose side he was on, which is why they called him Zigzag, because someone who'd zigged could also zag. Um, and, in fact, I think if the Germans had won the war, Eddie would have been fine. I think he would have just, he'd have just adapted to that. But they sent him... He was the only spy that was sent back into occupied Europe to work for the Germans, but at the same time, of course, he was actually working for us. Um, and he had the most extraordinary life, really. At one point, he was running... He had one girlfriend who was being maintained by MI5 in Britain, and then he had another one who, in, in Norway, in occupied Norway, who was being maintained by the Abwehr, by the German intelligence service. And he was just playing... He was engaged in, to both, wasn't he? He was engaged to both. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. he was actually, in the end, married to both. <laughs> right. Um, it was, it, but he was actually had already been married to a woman called Betty, who's still around. She's wonderful. She's a gangster's mall. Um, she's 94, and she lives in an old people's home in Amersham. And occasionally... <laughs> tries to shake me down, which I quite like. <laughs> <laughs>
What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When, when, when you're researching your books, or you, uh, even uh, operating as a uh, Ben M- Mick Jagger this week, actually. No, you like, when, you're, <laughs> when, you're, when you're talking to somebody like which, Betsy, she's called? Uh, Betty, yeah. Betty. How do you know, it's rather like spying, how do you know when somebody's telling you the truth or when they have false memory syndrome where they're trying to spin you a yard? How do you... Um, that's the, that's, you the, that that's the real pleasure of this stuff, is that, of course, you don't. I mean, spies are tremendous liars. I mean, they lie all the time, particularly in their memoirs. Mm. Um, so you don't really, but you get a kind of sixth sense for when you're being spun a, a line. And one of the wonderful things about writing non-fiction in this area is that an awful lot of material has now been released. 
20 years ago, it, you would have been breaking the Official Secrets Act to describe the colour of the carpets in MI6. Yeah. Now, MI5 routinely, MI5 being the internal security service, MI6 being the foreign intelligence service. Crucial distinction. MI6 will never release its files. MI5 now does on a 50-year rule. And so the zigzag files, for example, were the reason why I could write that book. And the zigzag files are wonderful. I mean, they're about that high. They're, they're a huge volume of material. And what makes them so interesting is that they're written by and for people who never expected them to be made public. So they're honest in a way that most government files are not. I mean, most, most official files are either trying to make themselves look good or make someone else look bad. In the zigzag files and other MI5 files, they're completely honest when it goes wrong. So you can, you can offset what, for example, Eddie Chapman said about it. Eddie Chapman wrote his own memoir, which is a wonderful tissue of complete fantasy. <laughs> um, it's just made up because he didn't expect the truth ever to come out. So you can compare what he said about himself with what actually happened. And you get this lovely kind of pattern. There's a sort of, there's a, there's a quality to those files that is quite different from any other historical research, really. So to answer your question, you know, you, you never know whether you're being told the truth until you've got the piece of paper in your hand that is actually contemporary to what was happening. And then you can, you can really work out what it was. And that's what's so wonderful, I think, about the spy world is because you can write about the sort of areas that are usually the province of, of novelists. Loyalty, love, betrayal, romance, adventure. It's all there, but it's true. Um, and you'd probably... Or is it? Well, quite. <laughs> I mean, but that's, again, the question with fiction, you know, you never know yeah. quite how much of it is true, but you can create something that is almost as close to a novel as you can get, but yet is as true as you can make it. And that's a real, that's a real challenge, but it's really good fun, too. Right. There was a, a, there's an interesting case along those lines in when Ian Fleming came to write from Russia with Love, there had been quite a high-profile KGB defector who had been debriefed in London, and Fleming had access to, to some of this material. And he was very proud. Any of you who have read From Russia with Love, which is, the, if you're only going to read one Bond novel, read that one. It is a brilliant book. But about almost the first third of the book, James Bond doesn't appear, and it's all about the Russians setting up this huge spy trap that they're going to use on him. And it's very detailed about the buildings and where they are and what the layout is and how all the, uh, the inside workings of all the people working there. And, and Fleming said in interviews, you know, this is absolutely bona fide true. I got all this from the intelligence sources. That, um, this is the most accurate depiction of how the Russians work and go about it. And, and a Bond fan travelled out to Moscow to see these places and <laughs> they weren't there. <laughs> All just completely made All up. All completely made up. The, the Russian defector uh, just lied. <laughs> yeah. Still a good book, though. It's fascinating, that, isn't it? I mean, the, yes, I mean, there's another example of that, which I've always loved, which is the, the Cambridge Five you'll all know about, who were, the, who were the sort of the communist spies who were all recruited in Cambridge, in the, actually after Cambridge in the 1930s. Kim Philby, Donald MacLean, Guy Burgess. And they were producing huge amounts of material that was going back during the war to the Kremlin, that was all being analysed back there. Uh, and they were, they were very well placed. I mean, Philby was very high in MI, MI6, Burgess was in MI5, McLean was in, the, um, was in the Foreign Office, and they were producing great stuff. And there was one particular KGB <coughs> analyst, one of the very few women in the KGB, called Nadia Komanechki, I think she was called. She was a colonel. And her job was to take all the material that was coming from, from Britain and analyse it. And... It's a sort of truism of spying that if something looks perfect, 
it's probably untrue. And so she put all of this stuff together and decided that because it all linked up, it must there be a, therefore be a complete fraud. <laughs> Although it was all true. And so <laughs> they just threw it in the waste paper basket. I mean, Stalin, Stalin didn't believe it because it all seemed to link up. And that gives you an idea of what um, Angleton called the wilderness of mirrors, because it's all, you know, truth and reality begin to refract each other, and you can't tell, out, you can't tell what is... So they had this cornucopia of wonderful intelligence material that they didn't use. <laughs> I, I mean, my own experience of writing these books is that you, you, get so, you spend so long writing them and so much of the time thinking about the characters that you go slightly mad. I wrote a book called The Spanish Game when I was living in Madrid about... 10, 12 years ago, which is about a very paranoid sort of exiled British spy who feels like he's being watched. And, and I had started a friendship with somebody who worked at the security service at MI5, and he, he happened to be in Madrid. And I'd taken him to the um, Bernabeu football stadium. And I'm very tall, as you've seen, as I walked on. I sometimes have a bad back. So around about, I don't know, 20 minutes into the game, I stood up and just sort of pitched left and right and forward and back and sort of stretched my back. <laughs> and I sat down, and he said... Were you sending a signal? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the start. And then, and then uh, a few weeks later... Well, not a very was, subtle signal. No, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't like... You know, it was to Zinedine Zidane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a few weeks later, he uh, sent me an email on April the 5th, which is my birthday, saying, just to wish you a happy birthday. And I thought... Because oh. it was before Wikipedia and all this stuff, right? I said, how the hell does he know when my birthday is? And my wife was in the bath. <laughs> I went in and I, I turned, it's ridiculous, I turned the tap on. I said, they've got, they've got microphones in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> and all because I was writing about Alec Milius, who was yeah. slowly going mad in Madrid. And I'd, be, I'd become him. You go, you go crazy. I was going to ask you, um, I mean, so if I write a book, I have, I have a picture in my head of a sort of 40-year-old businessman on an airplane to Shanghai who's going to read my book, right? You're, you were pitching the young bonds at the young people here today. How did you work that psychologically? How did you sort of do that gear shift? And did you spend... You, you obviously had young children at the time. That helps, I suppose. I did, yeah. I mean, I'd, been, I'd actually been trying to think of something I could write for my boys. Um, my oldest boy at the time was uh, 10, I think. Uh, and I thought, I'd like to write some kind of action-adventure thing, because being a boy, that's what he loved. And I was approached out of the blue by the, the Ian Fleming estate, who said they were wanting to develop this new series of novels about young James Bond. Would I be interested in writing one? Yes, I was. I was very interested. Um, and even as, you know, as, as they were finishing pitching the idea to me, I was sort of... The, 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 the book sort of sprang fully formed into my mind. I just wanted to put into it everything I'd loved doing when I was a boy, everything I saw my boys doing, um, and make, you know, put all that stuff, type of stuff into the book. Um, did you go to Eton? Did you walk around and walk? walk I did walk, go to Eton yeah. because um, Ian Fleming himself went to Eton, and in the books, James Bond goes to Eton. Um, Neither of them, Fleming or Bond, made it quite to the end of their schooling. Um, Bond, for uh, according to Fleming in one of the books, for uh, an adventure involving one of the school maids. Uh, and you know, I think in 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 writing Bond as a sort of Eton rebel, uh, Fleming was taking a certain amount of, of of revenge on the school, but also positioning Bond as that he's an establishment figure, but he's turned his back on it in a way. So he's, 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 he's a rebel, but he's not a rebel at the same time. Uh, and 
the li librarian uh, at the time at Eton um, was a huge Fleming fan, and, and I mean, I don't know if you looked into it, but the, they've got an amazing collection of valuable books in yeah. the library there. I mean, not only the historical ones, but, you know, Ian Fleming first editions. And, and they're very, a bit like MI6. They're very proud of the sort of James Bond connections. So he was, he was really useful in t telling me about the whole history of Eton and what it would have been like in the 1930s, which is when my books were set to, to tie in with the Fleming timelines. And, you know, I mean, it's hard enough working out what to do in your own school, but Eton as I'm sure you know, works like no other school <laughs> I've ever come across. It's own language, rather it, like moles and the circus. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I mean, <laughs> totally. And, and yeah, all this stuff, yeah. And the thing is, there's lots of books written about Eden, but they tend to be written by old Etonians who know that system, so yeah. they don't need to describe it. So it's mm. quite impenetrable to an outsider. Pink slips and yellow slips and all these things that went on in the, in the 30s. So it was quite fun investigating that world and, and trying to work out even how the teaching worked, the, the lessons. I mean, it... It almost worked more like a university where the kids were in charge of their own education. Um, so that was really valuable. But, but then, yeah, I mean, I came to write the books and I didn't know if my writing style would work for kids, if I needed to adapt it, you know, how much the balance between dialogue and description, how much historical information I'd need to put in to, to set up in the 1930s. So all I could do was, was use my eldest boy as, as a guinea pig. And as I wrote each chapter of Silverfin, the first book, I would... Um, read it out to him as a bedtime story, Fantastic. which is why the James Bond, my young James Bond books, are so incredibly violent. <laughs> 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 because, because being a boy, you know, I'd be reading away and I'd introduce a new character. He'd go kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "What do you mean kill him? I can't kill him. He just come in. He's got to go here and do this and set up this plot." He said, "No, no, no. I don't like him. You're the writer. Just kill him." You <laughs> That's a, you that's can a, do that, what you like. That's a version of the, the Raymond Chandler advice to, 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 to writers, that if, if, if in doubt, you don't know where the plot's going to go, have somebody walk in with a gun. Yeah. Exactly. But so I'm just looking at the time. We have about 17 minutes left, so prepare in your, in, uh, some, some questions for, for, for uh, the panellists. I just want to talk to Ben about the book that you're working on now, because it's so fascinating, the Oleg Gordievsky story. Rather, as you did with Eddie Chapman and Zigzag, could you just say a little bit about... Well, it is... I mean, the, the Gordievsky story is extraordinary. I mean, he was a KGB colonel, very senior in the KGB, who, who was actually a double agent for Britain for a dozen years. And he was... Spies, on the whole, I think, don't make a huge amount of difference. Um, to world events. Very often, you know, we've penetrated them, they've penetrated us, we know what they're doing, they know what we're doing. I mean, it can, be, it can make a huge difference, but, but Gordievsky's story is fascinating because it really did change the course of the Cold War. There was a time, he, he ended up being a very... He was actually appointed the head of the KGB in Britain um, shortly before he was betrayed. And he, um, at one point, he was briefing both sides. I mean, he was telling um, Gorbachev what to say to Britain or rather it was being dictated to him by Britain what to tell Gorbachev to tell Britain. But he was also briefing Britain about what Gorbachev... Would, so, so actually you've got that ex unique in history, I think, when both sides are being told what to do by one spy. And actually it, it accelerated the whole process of Glasnost. But, but his escape from Moscow is extraordinary. Just before you tell that story, just could you say a little bit about the, 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 the trickeries and the difficulty of running, for, for an MI6 officer, of running an agent in Moscow, Moscow rules, so to speak, and, and, and how, they, how they work the tradecraft there. That's all... So well, it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, under the KGB, it was, 
know, there were a million KGB officers in, in 1981. I mean, it was an enormous army of internal and external security. And so actually running a spy in Moscow was fantastically difficult. And in fact, in truth, when, when Gordievsky was there in the, before he came to Britain um, as a KGB officer, they didn't try. They, they realized it was just going to be absolutely impossible to make contact with him in a way that the KGB were not going to pick up on. So what they, the only thing they had with Gordievsky was an escape plan, um, which was that if he did get rumbled, if he thought he was in trouble, they would try and get him out. And the, the escape plan sounds extraordinary. It sounds straight out of fiction, because the idea, he would, to fly his escape signal, Oleg had to be seen on a particular corner of a particular street at a particular time during the week holding a Safeways plastic bag. <laughs> Honestly. Um, in Moscow. In Moscow, on the corner of Kutuzovsky Prospect, on a Tuesday evening at 7.30. And this signal site was policed by the MI6 officers every, every week for five years. They would walk past this thing. And if they saw a man with a Safeways bag, and bear in mind they'd never seen him, they'd, they'd only seen one photograph of him. They had no idea what he looked like. The acceptance of the signal was that they would eat a Mars bar. <laughs> it sounds insane, doesn't it? But they actually did, and they would keep stocks of Mars bars with them at all times in case they passed him on the street. That meant that the escape plan was, was a go, and that meant that, that Oleg then had to get to a particular point on the border with Finland, uh, hide in the sh in the, by the side of the road, then two MI6 diplomatic cars would pick him up. I won't give it away, but th th they managed to get him out, and it's an, it's an astonishing story. Just, just, you must tell the story about the baby on the boot. Well, OK, they, they've got him in the boot of the car. He's, he, he's wrapped in a special infrared rejecting blanket, so he's not going to be picked up by the infrared sensors as he's going through the, through the, the border post into Finland. Um, and they, the dogs, the sniffer dogs, start moving around the car, and, and they can obviously tell there's something going on in the car. And the, the woman MI6 officer who was sitting in the front had brought her baby along. Um, and the baby was in the back seat, and she realised that the dogs were, were about to pick up Oleg's scent. So she took her baby out, changed her nappy on the back of, on the boot of the car, and dropped the dirty nappy on one of the dogs, which of course went, you know, kind of, well, they couldn't smell anything at all. And they, they, so that is the dirty nappy that changed the course of the Cold War. <laughs> I th I, the weird thing is that I've met that baby in real life. I, yeah. at, a, at about ten years ago, I was at a party and she was there, and yeah. <laughs> she was the baby on the. Yeah. I, I wonder if she knows that. I did. <laughs> yeah, that she changed. Think, the course yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a it's a wonderful story, and, and yeah. Oleg is still very much around, living in the in the safe house. Uh, in I can't tell you where it is, but in in in, in England I can tell you where it is. Just yeah, no, China, meet, meet me after. Um, <laughs> where he's been for thirty years, you know, and he's yeah. still under guard because there's still an execution order for him in in Moscow. Um, he was tried in absentia, sentenced to death. So, would anybody like to ask a question? Is there, is there somebody in the audience who who would? Uh, there's a lady there with her hand in the air. Is there is there, is there a sort of roaming mic that could reach her? You have to sing now. Um. <laughs> Do you remember the Krogers? Yes. In the, the late 50s. Mm. Well, I have a story to tell about them that you may not know. Yeah. Um, friend, um, they lived in a perfectly ordinary bungalow in Ricelip mm. when they went about their everyday mm. uh, jobs. And all the time, their loft was equipped with... Um, spy equipment, mm. and they were in constant contact with Moscow. Yeah. 
Sounds like uh, the uh, Melita Norwood story, the, the, yeah. the spy who came in from the co-op, the, yeah. the old lady who... <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Krogers were amazing. Well, when they were discovered and arrested, um, friends of mine bought the bungalow. They were instructed by MI5 that if they found anything suspicious to report it immediately. So one day, digging in the garden, the owner came across rather suspicious-looking box that was, um, uh, there was red liquid coming out of it. So he instantly got on to MI5, and all these people came down, took the box away, and discovered it was a car battery. <laughs> <laughs> very Thank good. you very much. Very good. Now, the Krogers were extraordinary. The Krogers were illegals, what the, what, what the, what the KGB referred to as illegals, which are... There are two types of, of Russian spy. There are KGB officers who are under diplomatic cover. Who, and, and there are lots of them in, in Britain at the moment. They're not KGB anymore, they're FSB. But, but they come as diplomats, but they're actually doing intelligence work. A far bigger group are the illegals. They're the ones who come in under false identities. Um, and, and the KGB has always been brilliant at running these. And they had thousands of them in the, in the 60s. And the Krogers were just seemed to be a perfectly ordinary suburban couple. Um, but actually they were sleepers. And they were, they, were, they were operating undercover. They were part of the Portland spy ring. Um, Anybody else? There's... There's a, a, a boy in a, in a red baseball cap there, just at the back. Can you see him just standing next to your colleague in the blue jacket? He's, he's right on the edge by the, by the door. He's got a mic. I'm so sorry. Okay. Go ahead. What's your favourite young Bond book? Favourite of my young Bond books? It's a bit like asking me which is the favourite of my own children. <laughs> I do have a favourite, I'm just not allowed to say. Um, <laughs> I love them all in different ways. Um, no, I enjoyed writing all of them, and what I tried in each of the books was to make it as different a story to the other ones. But actually, I, actually, probably in the end, I think the one, my favourite, because it seems to be the one that's the most favourite amongst kids, is um, Hurricane Gold, because there's a bit in there where <coughs> young James Bond and his friend has to escape this kind of maze of death, which was a tribute to so many films that we've seen, things we've seen like that in James Bond films. So that was my favourite. Did you have a favourite? Um, mine is By Royal Command. All right, excellent. Another very good book. <laughs> <laughs> Can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> excellent. Do uh, former spies and secret agents make good politicians? Because we've got Yeltsin on the Russian side. And we've P got Putin, yeah. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> Putin, Freudian slip. And uh, also we've got David Davis, who was formerly Artist Rifles, 21 SAS. And we'd literally hundreds of our Mossad in the Israeli side. That's a very good question. Um, yes, I, I would, on the whole, think they would make very bad politicians. But um, Putin runs Russia mm. as if he's still in the KGB, and he's surrounded by former KGB colleagues, and, yeah. and they he is, cyber he, attacks and all that stuff. Yeah. It's all sort of from the KGB playbook. Isn't it? Yes, I mean, his whole approach to the world is KGB. I think he's completely unreconstructed in lots of ways. Actually, he has a very personal animus against Gordievsky because Gordievsky escaped at the time when Putin was, as I understand it, a young intelligence officer in Leningrad, um, and, and that was part of the escape route, and everybody was fired. All, his, all the people who backed him, all, Putin, were, were, were knocked out and, and removed at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's rather sinister to have a, 
a figure who understands the spy world that well. Um, of course, the spy world's changed a lot now. I mean, it is, it is mostly now signals intelligence. It's about cyber. It's about digital stuff. But you still do need human intelligence as well. It doesn't work that stuff. You need both at the same time. But do they make good politicians? I don't know. I, I hope not. Um, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, what about sort of spy, women spies or... Um, spy books for young girls. I mean, Bond film, the women are always sort of sexy or duplicitous, but is there anywhere in history for female spies or oh, yeah. and interesting stories? There's a uh, very good American uh, writer who was, who was actually ex-CIA called Jason Matthews, who's written a uh, novel called Red Sparrow. In fact, it's now a trilogy of novels, and I'm going to forget the name of the other two. Um, and it's about the relationship between uh, an American, a male American CIA officer and a... I mean, she is uh, gorgeous and Ill, <laughs> a, a Russian female uh, FSB officer. And uh, it's, it's a, a, I'd really highly recommend it. It's just been made into a film with uh, Jennifer Lawrence, which I think is coming out next summer or something. I think the, it's, a, it's not really particularly applies to spy novelists. I think it applies to uh, male novelists in general. It's, it, it's hard enough putting male behaviour and psychology and attitudes on, on, on the page um, and then to get one's mind inside uh, I think Freud's last words, dying words were what do women want? <laughs> so it's, it's, um, but, I but, find it, um, personally I find it quite challenging but a, a woman could write these books Of course, of course, <laughs> and, I mean that's just uh, I don't know No, I mean there are quite a lot out there um, including some for, for younger readers I can't at the moment off the top of my head remember them um, Helen McInnes is a female spy novelist of, of yesteryear. Oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in the non-fiction world, I that is part of your question, I mean, the, women make fantastically good spies. Um, I mean, during the Second World War, the, S, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which was Churchill's group to kind of destabilise and back up resistance organisations in occupied France was tremendously successful, and that was mostly women. Women make tremendously good spies, and there is a premium today on women spies. I mean, if, you, if, if the main target is kind of Islamic terror, women make tremendously good infiltration agents in that world because they're, they're kind of... This is going to sound very prejudiced, but in some Islamic societies, they're almost invisible. They can, they can operate in the background without being picked up. And, and I had an extraordinary experience the other day. I gave a talk at MI5, which I often do about my, my books. Not often, I do it every couple of years. And they said, would I like to meet some of the agent runners afterwards? And, of course, I said, give me anything to meet the agent runners. And so I'd expected them all again to be sort of James Bond types. And I could not have been more wrong. Um, I mean, half of them were women. And, and, and half of the whole group, and there must have been about 30 people there, were, were non-white. You know, so, so the premium is not these days on people who look like us three. Um, it's actually very much the other way. Although the leader of the group was extraordinary. He looked like... His name was Wayne. I'm probably breaking the Official Secrets Act again. And he looked exactly like... And probably was a motorcycle gang leader. He had a great <laughs> forked grey beard and studs in his nose and his ears and so on. And he was Welsh. And I said... Um, I said, what do, you, what do you do, Wayne? And he said, well, I spend most of my time talking to very unpleasant people in very unpleasant pubs and getting them to do things they don't really want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, so what's, who's, who's, your, who's your best agent? And he said, well, 
We had this man, right? Because he said he's, a lot of the people were on the fringes of organised crime. The, the people that he sort of... I mean, the, nobody ever says this, but Islamic terror and crime, there's a, there's a big crossover there. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, my best agent, right, he, he, uh, he couldn't have a baby, right? Uh, so uh, we paid for his in vitro fertilisation. <laughs> and uh, he had a baby, and that baby belongs to MI5 now. <laughs> You know, I thought that was extraordinary. Quite a good plot for a novel, actually. That's a, that, that's, you know. that actually is in, in a divided spine. Is it? Yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's an IVF plotline in divided spine. Yeah. Mm. How do we do with the sorts of hands? Okay, so let, let should we should we get two at the same time and then answer them and then yeah? Let's retake one. So the, there's a woman at the back who's got a mic. Brilliant. Go ahead. What advice would you have for any nine, ten, eleven-year-olds in the audience who want to be spies when they grow up? Okay, brilliant. And then one more. There's a guy down here. There's a boy there in green. Can we can we rush a microphone forward just for this bo oh. boy here in green? Oh, I'm sorry. We'll take, let's take three. Take three. Yes. How do you know if someone living near you is a spy? <laughs> uh, you don't. We can answer that very quickly. <laughs> and then just right at the front, there's a. Do you want to go? Yeah. It's just the yeah, guy in the green on the there. purple row. Yeah. What's your favourite James Bond bad guy? Ah, Charlie, that's one for you. That's a much easier question than how do you know if someone near you is a spy. Um, uh, for me, it's got to be Blofeld. He was the, uh, particularly the Donald Pleasance Blofeld in um, You Only Live Twice, which I saw at the, uh, probably about your age, maybe a bit younger, but the perfect age to go and see a James Bond film. Uh, and he had everything. He was bald, he had a scar, he had a weird jacket, uh, he had a cat... <laughs> and he had a, pool, a pool full of piranhas, and his base was in a hollowed-out volcano that had a sliding roof to fire rockets out of. Now, what is better than that? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'd have to go with Jaws. Oh, I yeah. think Jaws is sort of at once absolutely terrifying and hugely entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> always, always I loved Odd Job too. I mean, oh, odd yeah. Job. <laughs> yeah. And how do you how do you join now? I mean, the answer actually is rather prosaic. You don't have, like I did, and Charlie didn't have to wait to get the tap on the shoulder. You can simply apply online. <laughs> I mean, you just look up the MI5 yeah. or MI6 website and have a go. Yeah. Um, you still do get tapped on the shoulder, yeah. obviously, but yeah. But, yeah that's the... but I wouldn't advise it as a career. Not being in the field. I don't well, know. It's pretty important. I mean, it's, I think it probably matters more today than it's ever mattered. Um, I think well, the younger extent. generation should be going into politics. We need good politicians. Yeah. I think that's the great problem yeah. in the society now. We don't need any more spies. We need <laughs> good <laughs> leaders. need people to control them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have 25 seconds left. We could do one more. <laughs> there's a man in the purple there. Between you, uh, who would you see as the next James Bond? Between us, who would we see as the next James Bond? <clears throat> well, they always manage to surprise us and come up with someone that we weren't expecting. Uh, but particularly with Daniel Craig. Um, and a lot of people before he was James Bond thought, oh, yeah, you won't be very good. But Casino Royale, I think, is one of the best yeah. Bond films. Unfortunately, the ones since then haven't been as good. Uh, I'm very keen on a guy called James Norton, who um, is in Grantchester, is in Happy Valley, War and Peace. Um, he's got, for me, he's got that combination of sort of public school, um, public school rugby player sort of toughness, um, and he's sort of... Good-looking but ugly at the same time. So, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think he'd make a great James Bond. I suppose mine is... I, I, I would love James McAvoy to do it, but yeah. he's probably too old. But he's, 
he's got that great feral face that makes you think he's, there's something dodgy about him. And I think, <laughs> I think we want a slightly dodgier Bond now. One is he's still got to be able to hold his own in a, in a, in a punch-up. Well, though. I think he probably would be able to do that. I, anyway, I, he, I, he'd be my candidate. What about yours, son? I think Fassbender would be very good, but again, he's probably getting too old. Because yeah. I think Daniel Craig will do at least at least one more, and then the next Bond will have to be at the moment he'll have to be about thirty-five. And so then, although Roger Moore was forty-six when he did Live and, Live and Let Die, why do I know so much? He about was, <laughs> and he was he was fifty-eight when he did his last one. Yeah, he didn't do a lot of punch-ups in that one. No, no. <laughs> Can I offer Zimmer you one friend. very odd fact? about yeah. the James Bond, uh, which, and we wouldn't be sitting here if this had happened, that originally, and correct me if this is wrong, Casino Royale was going to be called The Undertaker's Wind. <laughs> um, is it, or is it the second one? No, it was the second that, one. Was, uh, that was the, uh, the one set in Jamaica. Um, that's right. I can't remember. Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die. Yes. Now, if it had been called The Undertaker's Wind, which to me sounds like a flatulent mortician, yes. <laughs> no one would have bought the books, no. James Bond would never have happened, and we wouldn't be sitting here now. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.